Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. This is all a mystery. (laughs) And it really is. Thank God. That's the joy. That's the spontaneity. That's the romance. That's the uncertainty. That's the, the grace of tomorrow. This is a graceful marriage. This is the way grace operates in a marriage. Filled with the Spirit over and over again. The truth is, grace is available to breathe life into your marriage. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Grace in Marriage, and shares the key to becoming a better spouse, and it's not about trying harder. So stay where you are. The Winning Walk begins in just a moment. Here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Grace in Marriage. A little boy went with his parents to church to dedicate a baby sister. When they left the church, they put him in his car seat and he began to cry hysterically, sobbing, crying louder and louder. And they tried to find out what was wrong with him. He just continued to cry until finally the father said, what are you crying about? What are you crying about? Stop crying, tell us. And he was sort of trying to stop. And he said, the pastor said that we were gonna be brought up in a home with Christians, but I wanna stay with you and mommy. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity all about? How in the world do we have, maintain a Christian home? Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is about relationships. It's about having the right relationship with God through Christ. It's about having the right relationship with yourself. It's about having the right relationship with others in all walks of life. So it is a study, a lifestyle of relationships. We're introduced to life in the early chapters of Genesis, are we not? God, the creator, said it is good, it is good, it is good. All that he created, it is good, it is good, until he said it's not good. And the verse says, it is not good that man should live alone. You see, he gave Adam the responsibility of naming all the animals, remember? What a tremendous responsibility. To be steward of the earth, to name the animals, and the animals would come by. We don't know how long it took him. But I can imagine as he studied every animal, trying to figure out what word would describe them and And finally, he came and said, you know, that looks like an orangutan. An orangutan looks like an orangutan, does it not? And oh, here comes an animal, and that that looks like a hippopotamus. Have you noticed hippopotamus looks like, you know, a, a hippopotamus? But in the process, Adam never saw an animal. 
that was like him. He never saw anything that was akin to him. He was made in the image of God, and he didn't see any of these animals, any image like that. But he went to sleep one night, and he awakened the next morning, and Eureka, there was Eve. And he said, there is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There is something that fits me. A female is different from a male. A male is different from a female. But they are the same. And when they come together, two become one. And therefore, we have God performing the first marriage. And he gave the formula for marriage. Leave, cleave, one flesh, no shame. What a beautiful picture. And in that garden, we know that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. What a privilege to go out in the pristine garden. Can you, we can't even imagine the beauty of it and to walk with Almighty God in the cool of the evening. And when Adam and Eve did that, as they looked at God and walked with God, in the reflection of God, God reflected into them that which was in Adam and Eve, which was the image of God, and the image of God in Adam and the image of God in Eve began to grow and reflect even more and more of God as they walk with him. But then you know the story of what we call the fall, <laughs> and they did fall. By the way, all of us were born fallen. Have you noticed that? Nobody had to teach you how to lie. It ain't a lesson on lying. Uh, uh, pride, oh, I knew how to, you know, lust, I got that. You know, we, we, we were born fallen. And here we have the beautiful story of the fall. How did it happen? God said, you've got total freedom in this pristine world that I have given you to superintend. Except don't eat of that tree. Then we have Satan coming, sliming in, and you know the story, and Eve took a bite out of the apple and gave it to Adam, and God showed up the next day in the cool of the evening, and he couldn't find Adam, he couldn't find Eve, and the Bible gives a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we disobey God, when we turn against God's principles, God's commandments. It says they were afraid, they went in hiding, they were ashamed, and they were naked. And God shows up and calls for them, and finally he says, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Then he said, by chance, you didn't eat of that apple, that fruit I told you not to eat. That's not the problem, is it? And then we have the wonderful blame game that most of us are so effective and efficient at. And first of all, we have Adam saying, you know, <laughs> it wasn't my fault. It's the woman you gave me. <laughs> Eve said, it's not my fault. It's the snake you put in the garden. Who did they blame? God. What was the sin? Basically, they wanted to be God. 
Satan told them, eat of this fruit and you'll be God. Isn't that the basic sin in every one of our lives? Everything we do, we want to be God. We want to call the shots, run our own lives. We think, amazingly so, that we can run our life better than God can, that I know better than God knows. Isn't that a staggering assumption? And we live in a fallen world. Therefore, in the process of this fallen world, the thing that reflects the fall clearer than anything else is marriage. Because what happened as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve? They began to live under the curse. What is that? Basically, to summarize the curse God placed on Eve and the curse God placed on Adam, it is summarized in the phrase that now Eve will desire Adam. In other words, Eve will get meaning in life from the husband, and the reverse of that, the husband will get the meaning in life from the wife. And a marriage that lives on that basis is living an Old Testament marriage, a fallen marriage, a legalistic marriage, a non-really dynamically functioning marriage. And I, I love to tell the story of the bride and groom, and I feel this so many times. At weddings, the bride comes down and the groom comes down. And I see the bride look at the groom and say, he's going to answer everything in my life. And he looked at her and said, oh, she's the answer to everything in my life. And I love the expression someone gave me a long time ago. You got two ticks and no dog. To thinking your wife is going to meet your needs, your husband is going to meet your needs. Oh, no. That's a fallen Old Testament marriage. And the truth is, a lot of us who are married, a lot of us who are not married think, well, that's the way marriage works. We have an Old Testament view of the post-apple way a marriage operates under the curse. I read in a book on, a book on the family, a wonderful little acrostic of the curse. Look at it if you would. This is a marriage under the curse. Does it describe your marriage? Control, unforgiving, reactive, shaming, ego-driven. Does that describe your marriage? Huh. And what happens when a marriage exists under the curse, Old Testament marriage? Look at what happened. You get tired. Look at this. Trapped, indicted, responsible, exposed, defeated. Does that sound like anybody's marriage? And then in the process, we feel guilty. We go to church. We're like, I'm going to try harder. Man, I'm going to try harder. Let the fruit of the Spirit come out of my life. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, long-suffering. I'm going to try harder in my marriage. How's that working out for you, ladies and gentlemen? The answer is not trying harder. That's not the way to make a marriage sing. To make a marriage sing. That's God's plan. So we go to the New Testament. And we see now how marriage is to function. And the scripture that is clearer than any other scripture, but also one of the most abused and misinterpreted scripture is Ephesians chapter number five. 
By the way, I love two verses in chapter four particularly, and I think they apply to marriage. It says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. I know it's hard for you to believe, but sometimes husband and wives have a problem and they get mad at one another. And it says, don't go to sleep before you get things worked out. It's not that you will agree. You can't stay up all night or for days because sometimes you'll never agree with your wife. You'll never agree with your husband. But don't let the sun go down your wrap. That means don't go to sleep till you get your hearts together. May not agree, but you'll get your hearts together. Great verse for marriage. The one I love best of all is the last verse in that fourth chapter. Be ye kind, kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you and hath forgiven me. Now, we'd love to live up to that, wouldn't we? How in the world do you do it? Ephesians 5 tells us. It's talking about walking. Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When a marriage is alive and functioning, it's a fragrant aroma, aroma to God and to everybody around it. Then look at verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men and women, but wise, making the most of the time. Then verse 17. So then, do not be foolish. Do not be stupid. But understand what is the will of the Lord is. And now here is the verse. Everything before and after in Ephesians revolves around this verse. Everything about the Christian life revolves around this verse. Look at it. It says, and do not get drunk with wine or his dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus to God, even the Father. Don't be drunk with wine. What happens when you get drunk with wine? You don't see very well. You don't hear very well. You can't think clearly. You certainly can't speak accurately. Your, your body doesn't work. You have trouble walking. That's what it looks like when we're drunk with wine. Someone's drunk with wine. All the senses are incapacitated. The Bible calls it dissipated. He said that's what it's like being drunk with wine, but when we're filled with the Spirit, we hear better. We see better. We think better. We operate better. Everything tastes better. In other words, the spirit-filled person, everything is tremendously alive and relevant and open. And someone drunk with wine, all the senses are deadened and dysfunctional. But how do you do it? How do you be filled with the spirit? Be filled. I'm not big on tenses. I'm not big on Hebrew and Greek. I've told you I, I know a little Hebrew and a little Greek, and the Hebrew runs a restaurant and the Greek runs a clothing store, but <laughs> the languages. But the language is very important here because people have grossly misunderstood this be filled with the Spirit. 
It is an active imperative, present tense, no, a passive imperative, present tense. What's the difference between an active imperative? Imperative is a command, isn't it? Uh, an active imperative says, you do this. This is what you've got to do. It's an active command in the present tense. That's not what is here. You don't say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Lord, I want your spirit to come in my life. Lord, I, I command that your spirit come in my life. No, that would be active imperative. It is passive imperative, and that means we make ourselves available. Do you get it? For the Holy Spirit to come in our lives. You see, when we receive Jesus Christ in our life, he is our Savior and our Lord. Then we, we make ourselves available and then the Holy Spirit will come into our life now and now and now to say that someone, there is someone who is walking filled with the Spirit. No, it's an ongoing, daily, regular process to be filled with the Spirit. You don't command the Spirit. You, don't, you just make yourself available, and the Holy Spirit comes and enables your life, enables my life. That is the power of God. You see? We just are available. That's what that means. Be filled with the Spirit. And then we have the pivotal verse that explains all of the teachings that follow this. And by the way, it says when you're filled with the Spirit, there is speaking and singing and thanking and submitting. And by the way, we don't say, well, now I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm going to start speaking to everybody. No, no, no. It's a byproduct. Because we've made ourselves available and the Holy Spirit has filled us now, 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 and now. And it's not a quantity. Oh, I'm half filled or third filled. I've heard all that. No, we are permeated with the Spirit. And it's over and over and over again in our availability to the Spirit. And then in that availability of the Spirit, then we see the next part, which is the key verse. And this is where we miss understanding about marriage. Now we're giving thanks. Now we're making melody. Now we're doing, and look at verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It says, you to be subject to me, I'm to be subject to you. There ought must be a constant attitude of surrender and being subject to one another. Now that introduces all the rest of it. That makes the teaching about marriage, the teaching about parenting, the teaching about slaves and those who are masters or those who are employers and those who are employees as we do. That makes it make sense. You see how this is normally interpreted is no big deal. The Ephesians at that day when Paul spoke these words and wrote these words, the Ephesians understood that the husband rules over the wife. That was what they did. That was the culture. They understood the parents, the father rules over the children. That was the culture. They understood that the employers rule over the employees. That was the culture. Paul just reverses all of that. And so many times that is missed. And is missed so many times by stupid 
phony, wanting to be biblical husbands who say, well, you know, the Bible says you ought to submit to me. No, guys, no, no, no. You're going to see your role as a husband and wives, you're going to see your role as a wife, and it comes down in an entirely different understanding. Your role as a parent and your role as an employer, as an employee, everything is reversed. Everything is reversed. Follow me. It will stagger you. Wives, verse 22, be subject. By the way, in your language, uh, in your Bible, if the word subject is there, it's sort of in a, kind of not written in the same print. That means when you see that, it's not in the original. It's not in the Greek. So mind you, the whole principle is here. We're to be subject one to another, right? That's, that's the background. That's the introductory verse. You're to be subject. I'm to be subject. In all relationships, we are to be subject one to another. That's the background. Now it spells out the wife's role. And it says, wives, the word subject is not there. Be to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husband in everything. Now, hold on. We're talking about being subject. We're talking about being submissive here. And wives are to be submissive, subject to their husbands, as we are subject to Christ. The word head in every kind of understanding means somebody in charge, somebody who's commander-in-chief, somebody who owns all the stock. That's not how it's used in biblical understanding. To be a head in biblical understanding is to be a servant. And the word submit here means to position yourself under. So wives, you are to position yourself under your husband. You say, well, that, that's what I was afraid of. That's what I was, I was worried about. Oh, no. As Christ, as we are positioned under Christ, how did you and I in the church, in Christ, become positioned unto him? Did Christ come and say, all right, I want you to straighten up and you yield and I have come. I'm in charge of you. You buy. No, no, no. We came to Christ, what, with a bent knee? And we voluntarily became under Jesus Christ. We submitted to him. And what kind of leader is Christ? He's a servant. He is serving. That's the genius of the Christian ethic. We are to be servants as Jesus Christ was the suffering servant for us. So submission comes as we position ourselves under, under our partner in this context, as we have positioned ourselves under Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't just zap you or slap you and say, get down. We voluntarily submitted ourselves unto him because we know when we voluntarily submit ourselves unto him, what kind of deal is that? He is one who, how far did he serve us? How far did he go? He took all the slime from you and from me, and he paid the price for that. He died for us. So that's the reason we bow the knee. That's the reason we are under him and under that understanding of servanthood.
positioning ourselves under. That's what the word submit means. That's the position of the wife. But look, the husbands also, they are to position themselves under their wife. You say, well, what does this look like? The verse tells us clearly. It says, husbands, love your wife as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. Men, you are to love your wife to the point that you would give your life for her and your highest priority in your life is her happiness, her well-being, and her fullness and her joy. There's nothing else comes ahead of that in this life. Now, we're talking about a Christian marriage. The wife positions herself under the husband. The husband positioned himself under the wife, just how Christ did it. And the rest of it says, what does the husband do? What Christ has done for the church? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, any such thing, but that would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Do you see, gentlemen, we are to enhance, we are to praise, we're to cheer, we're to read on. And sometimes in marriage relationship, we get so cute, so cutting, so belittling, and we are to take our wives and we are to be under them and praise them and lift them up and cleanse them, present them to God. My goodness, your wife will become glorious right before your eyes. Wives, submit yourselves under your husbands. Man, just like we've submitted ourselves unto Christ. And then husbands, you love your wife as Christ loved your church. Present your wife pure and clean, alive and radiant and dynamic. That's our responsibility. That's the male's responsibility. You see, here's how it works. Females give themselves totally to their husbands, and you'll become the kind of female God planned for you to be. Males, give yourself totally to your wife, and you'll become the kind of man that God intended for you to be. Men need the female aspect and females need the masculine aspect and it happens only when both partners submit themselves under the other and in that submissive attitude. The husband is to love and to lead and the wife is to submit and to respect her husband. Look what happens in a marriage. If you're tired of an Old Testament marriage, this is the way to do it. And then there's one little verse. I'll not read it to you. I'll quote it. This is all a mystery. <laughs> and it really is. Thank God. That's the joy. That's the spontaneity. That's the romance. That's the uncertainty. That's the, the grace of tomorrow. This is a graceful marriage. This is the way grace operates in a marriage. Filled with the Spirit over and over again. Then Submit, wives to husbands. Husband, submit. And all of a sudden, let me tell you what happens, folks. Chemistry comes back. Smiles come back. Spontaneity comes back. Joy comes back. Excitement comes back. And all of a sudden, you'll see your husband begin to grow and mature. And you'll see that wife begin to shine and to glow. And that's what a Christian marriage is supposed to be all about. That also works in parenting. That's chapter six. I'll not read it to you. It says, fathers, 
Oh, yes. We are to what? Position ourselves under our children. Children, you are to position yourself under your father and your parents. How does this work? Children can be spirit-filled. Fathers can be spirit-filled. You say, well, uh, if I position myself under my children, why would we do that as parents? Because you're trying to figure out how God has wired them. That's why you do it, parents. How God has put them together. And that is the way that God has planned them. I'm always amazed. I have three sons. They're all different. And everybody said, you know, all my children are different. Well, did Tracy. <laughs> everybody can say that. Everybody can say that. See what I'm saying? But you've got, as parents, we've got to figure out how God has wired them. One of my boys, I could speak, and he would cry. And other boys, I need to get 16 belts. And, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you had to discipline severe. They're, they're wired differently. Their personalities are different. And so we have to position ourselves under our children. We can't provoke them to wrath in our discipline. We have to know how and when and what kind of discipline best works for this child and best works for that child. One of my boys, I could look at them. That's all it takes. The other one, I had to severely discipline them in sense of denial. You see, we position yourself under your children, and they'll be spirit-filled, and you as parents will be spirit-filled. This is the way it works. Well, what about in the vocation? I mean, I, I, here, here's the foreman, here's the, the boss, and tells everybody what to do. No, I'll tell you, if you're in a position of supervi supervision, uh, you own something, or you're a supervisor, you know how to work in that organization with your employees. Position yourself under them. Anybody who works in our upper-level staff here, they know one thing. I position myself under every member of the staff. Why? I want to do everything I can to see that they fulfill the best they can do in their calling. I work for them. They don't work for me. There's a genius in that in business, folks, in relationships. Position yourself under. Let your employees know. Let me tell you something. I want what's best for you, and I'm on your side. I'm on your team. And see, that's what the Spirit does. And then the employer, you say, hey, I'm under your supervision. I want your guidance. You see, we position ourselves under. We position ourselves under. It's submit, 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 and you're amazed at what God will do. You see, this is total backwards of what the world teaches. This is what the kingdom of God teaches. It's totally the opposite of everything we think how the world operates. The world operates like that, but Christians don't operate like that. And marriages that operate like this, spirit-filled, husband under, wife under, families that operate this, parents under, children under, businesses, leadership under, fellowship under, Amazing things happen. It's God's way of relationship. And the hallmark of that we find in the institution, marriage. Marriage. A couple was married for 72 years. They'd known each other all their life. They were friends as children and then teenagers. They became better friends. And when friendship catches fire, boy, that's real love. They got married and were married for 72 years. They were inseparable. They had a business. They both worked in the business together. 
They ate every meal together. You couldn't say one name without the other, Mary and Joe, Joe and Mary, Mary. You know people like that. You, you can't, well, what about Joe? No, Joe and Mary, Mary. They were inseparable. I'd been married 72 years. They were in a tragic automobile accident, both of them critically, critically ill. They were in the hospital, one in one room, one in another room. But when they would wake up and all of the medication, all the, the brokenness they'd experienced, the man would only ask about his wife. How's she doing? How's she doing? They couldn't do anything with him. How's she doing? And he, it, she would only ask about him. How's he doing? How's he doing? Finally said, look, both of them are critically ill. We don't think either one will live. Let's just put them in the same room. And they did. Same room in the hospital, put them side by side. Immediately, they began to hold hands. See, they'd done that all the way through, 72 years. They began to hold hands. And finally, in all they could do, the husband died. Time went by and the children in the room and they said, look, look, dad's not dead yet. His, look at the monitor. His heart is still beating. Nurses said, no, 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 that's not his heart. That's that your mother's alive. That's they're holding hands so tightly. She's still gripping him though he's dead. And it is her pulse that's beating through that hand into his body that gives the appearance that his heart is beating. An hour later, she died. The kid says, that's just like our dad. He always went ahead of mom to get everything ready for her. <laughs> and said he's already up there, ready to introduce her to the Lord God Almighty. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Well, before we leave you today, Dr. Young is here to answer a couple of questions coming out of the message we've just heard. Well, in your years of guiding people through marriage, Dr. Young, how have you seen God's grace restore relationships? It's when the husband and the wife humble themselves. It's when they look in the mirror and see in marriage, your number one challenge, if you are the husband, is to achieve and help your wife to be totally happy. The number one marriage for the wife is to achieve and help your husband to be totally happy. If you have this kind of relationship, that's where marriage is one of the symbols we have of the church. One person giving themselves to the other person 100%. I've married a lot of people, and I see them at the altar, and I see the guy look at the girl, and the girl looks at the guy, the man, the woman, and, and this is what I see. I see the man looking at his wife saying, boy, she's going to meet all my needs. The wife looking at the husband saying, man, that husband's going to meet all my needs. What you have there is two ticks and one dog. Ticks drawing blood from the dog. Ticks drawing blood from the dog. That's not marriage. That's not marriage. It is surrender of yourself, your goals, and say, I want the happiness of the other one. Leave, cleave, one flesh, no shame. That's marriage. It works when both partners are more interested in the happiness of the other one than they are themselves. Thanks, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.